Did you know Thomas Edison was a gigantic asshole? <laughs> what? Okay, so everyone is like, oh, Thomas Edison, he invented the light bulb. No, he didn't. He stole the idea from people. He was basically, if you can picture the, like, stereotypical, gross, like, fat cat capitalist monster image, that's literally Thomas Edison. He would basically steal ideas from people and threaten them and be like, look, I can sue you into decimation or you can work for me and I'll still steal all your ideas and take all of the credit. Motherfucker was not this inventor that everyone is like, Thomas Edison, he invented light and everything. No, thank Nikola Tesla for your light bulbs. I did not know any of that. And I am also fully convinced that about 60% of the history that I've learned is actually wrong. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, not only are there egregious errors in the history that we're taught in schools, everything about African American history is completely wiped, you know, except for a few mentions that we do learn about, but not really the reality. So not only is there that, a lot of... The Native American history completely yep. wiped. Like, our history is so whitewashed that even the white guys who we look at as, like, these wise invent- inventors and amazing accomplishments, they they didn't. Like, that's what I just learned now from you, that I'm like, cool. So we literally have whitewashed history so much that it's pretty much just all inaccurate. Oh, oh 100%. I mean, shit, look at, like, fucking Columbus. He was a monster who caused genocide and literally stole islands and raped everyone and was just a monster. He was a monster and also didn't even know where the fuck he was. He, I don't know. It Honestly, I do not call it Columbus Day. It's not and it shouldn't be recognized that way anymore. It, it is properly Indigenous Peoples Day. And yeah, I mean... I I get that day off work, which is rare. I know not a lot of people do. And it was so weird to me getting that day off when it was still called Columbus Day. I'm like, why? Like, why is this a bank holiday? This is stupid. But anyway. Yep. Also, I like how this conversation were happening in January, February. Not October. (laughs) (laughs) Not October, but I can be upset about it year round. Yes. (laughs) But hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I'm not upset to be here talking to you today. Just upset about obscene holidays. Yeah, I can agree with that. (laughs) Speaking of holidays, though, on the brighter side, and not really holiday related, but you know what I really want to do when we're allowed to, like, see people and leave the house? (laughs) What? (laughs) I want to throw a dinner party. I've never done it before. I don't really know what the difference between throwing a dinner party and having friends come over for dinner is, but I want to do it, and I want to call it a dinner party. I think the difference is multiple courses and fancy food. I'm going to make a gross monster 1950s jello mold for dessert. There's going to be like, I don't know, a whole pineapple, olives, cabbage, probably tuna in it. I don't know. It's going to be disgusting. I'm going to make my friends eat it. (laughs) So they will never come to another one of your dinner parties ever again. I'll also serve them wine. They still may not ever come again if you feed them tuna jello. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, that's that that is fair. Anyways, um, I'm just gonna jump into something that's not tuna jello. I know. And I'm like something is Patreon. <laughs> that's disgusting. I'm still stuck on it because that is that is nasty. Okay, listen. I just want to say there are certain like aspic recipes, which is what jello molds are called aspics that i am kind of interested in none of the sweet ones that have like meat and mayonnaise and stuff no but the ones that are like tomato and gelatin that have like i don't know ham or something in it it doesn't sound good but i it doesn't sound bad i mean i mean it think it's eating a gelled bloody mary ew I'm honestly just sitting here thinking of like tuna with like cherry or lime jello because that's what I picture in my head when we talk about these types of recipes. I know it's not flavored jello, but my God, maybe some of it is. I actually watched a really interesting video today on the rise and fall of the popularity of jello. So, you know, that's that's the kind of shit I'm into. I mean, I would say that's weird, except I can't, because remember growing up, we watched that one show on the Food Network that was literally Unwrapped. about yeah the origin of all these different kinds of sweets and foods and stuff. I loved that show. So, like, yeah. not, not as weird as you may think. Half our listeners just turned us off. They're like, who are these people? They're so weird. And the other half is like, what other foods do you know about? Please tell us. <laughs> Listen, I'm just saying uh, the uh, Cheddar YouTube channel has a lot of interesting stuff like that. But anyways, Patreon, we, I am ringing the boat around. We're, we're circling back. We're going into Patreon. First and foremost, if you haven't, head over to our Patreon. It is Blood and Wine Pod, not cast. The cast, it's been deleted. There is no cast. The cast is us. So Blood and Wine Pod on patreon there you can uh look into joining our blood wine family we have murder mini episodes and also uh coming up on february 5th so this friday if you're listening to this episode when it comes out we're doing our live drink with us at 8 p.m central so come join us drink with us chat with us hang out ask us any burning questions you have um, and let's just, let's chill. Let's socialize. Let's hang. Also on the topic of Patreon is this episode's topic. Our episode today is actually one that is a topic picked by our Patreon family member, Lexi Van Boven. She sent us a case that was really close to her, really dear to her heart. Um, it's a case I will be doing today. And so it is an incredible story of survival and it's amazing so what better topic than to have this episode be a survivor episode you know i really love our survivor episodes just getting to end on that high note that's not something we get to do very often and while you guys are at it if you want to hear some of these other survivor episodes or you want to make sure you hear our most recent episodes make sure you have subscribed to us on apple podcasts I think Google Play is no longer a thing. It's called something else. I honestly don't know. Sorry, guys. I don't have an Android. Um, I don't have an Android either. (laughs) I'm just not very well versed on the podcast platforms that are, sorry, not for iPhone and not Spotify. Just be sure and check us out. We're pretty much on every platform that you could look at, even the ones we don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
Well, I am ready to jump into our cases, into this episode, but before we do that, we're going to jump into our wine. And Brittany, what wine are you drinking today? I will be drinking the 2019 Jetbird Malbec from North Coast, California. And this bottle has such a cool label. It's got this bird that's like navy and gold and just very... Oh, Well, this bird has either armor or artillery. I can't tell. But hey, it's a Malbec. I'm excited about it. I don't know if I've ever had a Malbec from the north coast of California, so I'm excited to see what this one's all about. We have had so many wines. I I don't know. Not just in the podcast, but in life. I mean, that's totally fair. So this wine is all ripe fruit on the nose, so very like fruit right immediately when I'm going to open this bottle, raspberry, cherry, plum, and then I'm going to get a little hint of baking spices. It is a fuller bodied wine with softer tannins. So some of those baking spices are things like vanilla, there's going to be some blackberry. So this one sounds very interesting to me. I don't think it's going to be sweet, But it's definitely, I'm hoping those baking spices kind of bring down all of this jammy fruitness that it feels, I feel like there's going to be in there. Yeah. Honestly, Malbecs, whenever I, my first thought about Malbecs is that I think of Merlot. Like I, I know they're different. I always confuse them in my head, but Malbecs are so different. Like to me, a Malbec is a lot closer to like a Zinfandel. Yeah, I had Malbec for the first time when I was like, maybe like 26 or 27, like... Not 23, so (laughs) this is okay. (laughs) (laughs) If y'all don't know that, find us on YouTube. Or scroll on our Instagram until you see a picture of me with red hair looking real skinny, (laughs) and you know it's not (laughs) recent. (laughs) Uh, It's because I was 23... And it's okay. (laughs) So this wine is really good when it's paired with blue cheese and fig jam, a skirt steak with chimichurri sauce, or backyard cookouts. So I don't know about you, but that just sounds like an amazing meal. And I want all of that right now. I mean, blue cheese can go to hell, but a skirt steak with chimichurri sauce. (laughs) <laughs> yes did you know that blue cheese has mold in it <laughs> blue cheese has no you mold can't sing it, it. <laughs> we don't rise to that it's it's not copywritten i don't know you don't know that anyway if you don't know what we're talking about you're clearly not on tiktok and that's okay save yourself don't don't join <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so this is going to be a great Malbec. Like I said, it is full-bodied, and I don't know why I thought Malbecs were more medium-bodied, but maybe I was wrong because I have another Malbec. It's also full-bodied, so maybe I just haven't known what I'm talking about when it comes to Malbec for the last three years. Fair. So let me get into this one. All right. Moment of truth. Nice. Okay, looking pretty dark and purple. Like a nice bruise. Or a bad bruise. Bruises are not nice. Also, hickeys. 
very fruit forward. Like, wow, this raspberry, blackberry, right on the nose. The vanilla is towards the end of the sniff. Is that a thing? (laughs) (laughs) The end of the sniff. (laughs) The end of the sniff. My autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like a title. I was about to say that. (laughs) Honestly, I think that's something I want to do for the rest of my life is when I hear phrases like that, even from a random stranger, just be like, that should be the name of your autobiography. And then just like walk away. They'll... (laughs) They'll remember it because it'd be the weirdest fucking thing that happened all day. No, but you would be that crazy lady in a Panera bread when a dude's <laughs> like, oh, God, half a steak sandwich, honey, I don't think so. And you're like, half a steak sandwich, honey, I don't think so. Should be the name of your autobiography. And then you leave. Or, and they're like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> or it's how I find my husband because it's someone who appreciates that kind of humor. If they don't appreciate that kind of humor, kind of humor, I don't have time for them. I mean, yeah, if he came back and he's like, ah, oh, my first one was half a bowl of potato soup. So, and then y'all laugh. I don't really want to meet my future husband in a Panera, but honestly, I can't be picky. So <laughs> Panera's bomb as fuck. <laughs> Do you want to hear about my wine? Honestly, I want to drink mine. So yes, tell me about yours. Well, I guess I've already told you. It's very, like, now I'm smelling the cherry on the front of the sniff. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, I'm interested to see what it's going to taste like because it does smell very fruit forward. So while mine breathes, Tyler, what wine are you going to be drinking tonight? So the wine I'm drinking today, it is the 2019 Cabin 5 Barbera from the north coast of California. And I've had a Barbera a few times. I thought they were like Italian. They are, but this is Italian grapes grown in California. And I definitely am pretty sure I called it a Barbara when I first (laughs) saw the name. It's not. Barbara didn't make this. Although... You know what? The winemaker could have been named Barbara. Barbara Barbera Wines. Come on. Come on. That's branding right there. Also, we're both drinking a wine from the north coast of California. So I wonder if there are going to be any similarities in these tastes. I mean, they're not the same variety, but I'm just curious. Same soil. Well, I mean, you know, a story I've never told anyone on this podcast or you is the time I... Tried to drink wine in Northern California and went to Hippie Commune. (laughs) Yeah, I forgot that. It was also in Northern California. Yes, it was. Um, Anyway, so this Barbera wine, it is, like Brittany said, a popular Italian grape. Um, But this one, since it's from California, it's going to be a little bit more fruit forward on the nose. Um, It is full of ripe fruit notes like plum, blackberry, and cherry warm brown baking spices that add a really nice amount of depth and complexity and it has a nice bright acidity um the fun card that came with it says that the four big flavors we're looking at are blackberry black currant cinnamon and earth and also fire water and wind i don't know (laughs) this one is also a full-bodied red And it apparently pairs well with bold smoked cheeses, sausage and mushroom stromboli, which is just so specific. (laughs) And also, schwanky dinner parties. Is this why you want to have a dinner party? Apparently you need Barbara wine. (laughs) I need Barbara to come over (laughs) and bring some wine to the dinner party. Uh, But yeah, um, I'm excited about this. 
I am a little bit stuck on just, again, sausage and mushroom stromboli. It sounds amazing. I love stromboli. It's so specific. I'm like, who who thought of that? Who was taste testing the wine and was like, hmm, this would be good with like a nice greasy meat, some like umami earthy like mushroom. You know what? Mom's sausage and mushroom stromboli. And everyone else is like, we've never had that before. And they're like, Tim, just trust me. Just trust me. And he writes it on the card. <laughs> just trust me. Honestly, would you put it past some of these wine people? No. I'm surprised we've not had a bottle that the brand is just trust me. Honestly, again, branding. You're on fire Anyways, tonight. <laughs> I am. I'm, But I'm opening this. This foil's really thick. Are you having trouble getting it off? Well, I kind of shredded my hand, so yeah. I It's like a like a cheese grater, but you know, on my wine bot. It's in between me and my wine, so it we're going to have problems, but I just tore it all off. I mean, I took the entire full foil thing off of mine too. Are you bleeding? No, not yet. I thought you were about to hit yourself in the face. I, you know, I'm surprised I haven't done that yet. Just <laughs> slice open my cheekbone with a wine opener. It's in the cork. Oh. What do you smell? I mean, just smelling the cork, it smells like a Sauvignon Blanc. This is a red wine, by the way. This is a full-bodied red. Is your nose broken? Maybe. But we'll see. Okay, well, let's pour it so we can, like, actually smell my you know sometimes we just need to pour a little extra for our hearts (laughs) it is red wine it's good for your heart maybe half that but (laughs) no it smells like a sauvignon blanc i'm just really confused so it smells like key lime pie no no it's it's not marlboro come on but it's it smells like a california sauvignon blanc like the more bright acidic citrus Turns out it is a Sauvignon Blanc with food coloring. <laughs> God. Honestly, um, I saw a study somewhere, or maybe someone told me, because I don't believe it, but it was like, oh yeah, someone put food coloring in white wine and served it to wine taste testers, and they said it was a great red. They didn't know. And I'm like, okay. They weren't good wine taste testers then. I know, were these, like, already, like, ten sheets to the wind drunk college students? (laughs) Is that the phrase, ten sheets to the wind? How many sheets to the wind? Three. My God. (laughs) (laughs) Someone who's ten sheets to the wind? I I don't think they're conscious. But why three? I don't know. Also, sheets to the wind? (laughs) I I mean, when I get really drunk, (laughs) I hang my laundry on the line. Is that where it comes from? Anyways, whatever. I mean, you're the one that has all the history obscure facts, but not this one. Not that one. Maybe I'm smelling black currant because it also is giving me black wine gum vibes, which are the best flavor of wine gums, by the way. Okay, well, I'm excited to taste what this is actually going to taste like. So, Brittany, I think we should cheers. I'm ready as well. Cheers. 
Oh, whoa. Hold the phone. This wine's weird. It's good. It's really good. I'm... I think. I'm a little confused with mine as well. And I'm sitting here like... I've tasted so much vanilla and blackberry. Like, I don't think I've ever identified vanilla this much and in this way in a wine. Because it literally is like blackberry jam that someone has put vanilla into. So it is, it is a very jammy, soft tannins for sure. I wouldn't call it sweet, but it is not a super dry wine. Like last week, our wine was dry, dry, dry. This is not like that. It's, it's more like on the scale of dry wine, it is dry, but right next to sweet. Semi-sweet? I, I don't know. That's not really a thing. But it, yeah, it is. I guess it is. It's interesting. It's interesting. It's good. I don't think I've ever had a Malbec like this before. And I think that's why I'm really confused. I'm used to more baking spices and more not not as jammy. It's almost yeah. like a blend. Hmm. I will admit, this is not my favorite wine. It's good. I would never buy this one again. That's fair. I'm just confused by mine because it tastes th- literally the front half of the f- taste is is kind of like a Sauvignon Blanc, and then the back half is uh, is a red wine. What? But I th- I I think my brain is taking in the bright acidity that this one definitely does have. And then the flavors of, like, the blackberry and blackcurrant. But you know how, like, an actual blackberry is not that sweet? It's like a burst of tart? Yeah. That's what this is. And so I think my mind is taking that, like, tart fruit and acidity. And that's honestly a similar profile to a lot of white wines. And not one I've really had in a red before. It's good, I've never had anything like this before. And full-bodied my ass. This is medium-bodied. I mean, I, again, I, I just drink wine. I'm not an expert. And I'm sure the person who, like, wrote up this little card that says it's full-bodied is. But... <laughs> right after you're like, full-bodied my ass. <laughs> Listen. But yeah, this wine. Anyways, um, it's good. It is one I will have no trouble drinking the whole bottle. It's a it's the kind of red wine that you look up after you've been drinking it for 47 minutes and you're like, "Oh my god, I am halfway done with my last glass I have of this." <laughs> Those are the dangerous ones. Yeah. I'm intrigued by yours. Um I'm interested to hear what you think as we go through the episode. Mine, even in just this amount of time that we've been discussing, the baking spices have leveled out and kind of balanced it a little bit more. It's not as fruity, but it's an interesting wine. If you like wines that have very soft tannins that do have more of those fruity notes mixed with vanilla, you would love this one. Just for my taste profile, Tyler, I feel like I'd rather have one like yours. Although... I don't know how I would feel taking a sip of red wine and it initially tasting like a Sauvignon Blanc. I just think that would be too much of a mind fuck for me. I mean, yeah. Did you not hear me when I first sipped it? I kind of fell out of reality for a moment. I think you're still there. A little bit. But okay. 
Well, we have our wines. We have our topic. Brittany, what is your survivor case today? The case I will be talking about today is the survival of Charisma Carpenter. The sources I used, I found a new program. It's called Surviving Evil. And this was season one, episode one. And the title of the episode is Terror Beach. Shit. Where did you find this? Like, what channel? Oh, just kidding. We don't use channels anymore. What website? YouTube. (laughs) Okay. Honestly, sometimes if you just like, because I was trying to find a survivor case and the different types of, you know, the, the ways we search for those are a little bit different. And I decided to go straight to YouTube and I found this one. I had never heard of this show. I definitely feel like I want to watch more of it. Although the reenactments were totally cheesy, but it was done well. I am not just not a fan really of reenactments. No, they're not my favorite either. But at the same time, when you've got two to three people telling the story, just going back and forth between them. That's true. And I will say, I judge reenactments, but the reenactments on Unsolved Mysteries, like the old Unsolved Mysteries, you know, they weren't good. It's definitely rose-tinted glasses. I'm looking back with, like, my childhood and all of that. No, they were bad. They were bad. (laughs) I'm thinking about it. They're like, Cassandra, don't go into the car. But Billy, I have to go into the car, even though there is a hook on the door. Yeah. I mean, the new episodes, though... They basically just show, like, an empty building and, like, a, the woods. Yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> the <laughs> And then, like, news pictures and yes, video and stuff. Yes, they do. But, yeah, the ambiance of the new ones is very cinematic. It is very cinematic. I still need to watch the second season on Netflix. I've only watched the first episode. <laughs> well, like, I don't want to blow through them. You know how long in my life I've waited for more Unsolved Mysteries? I don't want to go through that in a day. And you easily could. Yeah, yeah. So on a completely unrelated note, back to my case. I do want to give a trigger warning. This case does involve rape. The name Charisma Carpenter may be familiar to some of you guys, and that's because she's an actress. She's known for some pretty big roles like Cordelia Chase in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as well as its spinoff, Angel. She also starred as Kira in Charmed, or that might be Kyra. Sorry if I'm, I don't remember that season of Charmed, you guys. Um, She was also Kendall Casablancas in Veronica Mars, Rebecca Sewell in The Lying Game, and Lacey in The Expendables. So she's been in a lot of things. I recognized her from mostly Angel, actually. She was in Buffy, too, but I recognized her more from her time on Angel. See, I never watched Buffy or Angel. I know. Shocking. Um, But I did watch Veronica Mars, and I have no idea who Lacey is. No, Kindle. I also don't know who she is. I don't know. I didn't watch Veronica Mars, actually. Well, I've watched, like, the first episode. I love Kristen Bell, but... Yeah, and I also love Kristen Ritter, who was in, like, some of later seasons. But I haven't watched the movie or the, like... not remake the extra stuff hulu did i don't know but yeah the the name charisma carpenter i recognize not only is she an actress she's also a survivor 
She went to high school in San Diego, and when she was 21 years old, she was fiercely independent, and she took a lot of pride in that. She would get together with her friends, surf. They loved going to the beach. The beach was a big part of her life. So in the summer of 1991, she was selected to cheer for the San Diego Chargers, which that's an NFL team. They're now the Los Angeles Chargers. They've relocated. I think that was back in, I think, 2016-ish. Don't quote me on that. I thought the Rams were the ones that went to LA. Did everyone go to LA? I think LA has multiple teams. Okay. It's LA. It's basically its own state, right? Sure. She also, this summer, worked at an apartment complex, and she was a leasing agent there, and she also lived there. Shortly after she took the job, though, as the leasing agent, strange things started to happen. She would hear things at night, and she really felt like someone was trying to break into her apartment complex and to her specific apartment. She was on the second floor, so she did feel a little safer. However, she did know it was also not that difficult to get into the apartments. Because she worked there, she knew that their sliding glass doors were installed backwards, so it was pretty easy for the glass to just be removed. Oh my god. You'd think that they would be required to fix something like that. Like, does that not break, like, fire codes and stuff or something? I I don't know. I mean, it probably does. Yeah. But they're not going to be required to change it unless someone says something. That is very true. And I will say, I don't think everyone could accurately identify if a sliding glass door is installed backwards. How would you know? If it opens the same, if you have the same type of handle on each side, how would you know that the doors are actually opposite? Oh, Oh, so that's what you mean by backwards. I don't know what I... I was picturing, like, (laughs) I don't know, something else, but, like, the fucking handles on the outside. Well, I mean, there are certain sliding glass doors. Like, does yours have a handle on the inside and the outside? I don't know. I'm not wearing my glasses right now. (laughs) That's more than 10 feet away. I'm pretty sure it does, because you have to be able to open it to get out and to open it to get back in. So No, once you're out, you're out. <laughs> well, for her, she couldn't get out. You could only come in. No. Th- but the door was installed backwards. Like, I don't know how sliding glass doors work, but apparently there is a right way and a wrong way to install it. It's a door. Well, I mean, it would make me think that, like, the like little lock latch thing is on the outside now. So you probably wouldn't be able to lock it from the inside. That's creepy. I don't like that. One night when she was sleeping... She heard a noise and she woke up and she was truly convinced that someone was trying to break into her apartment. So she starts yelling at them to go away. But these types of things kept happening. So she started having friends sleep over or she would sleep away at her friends' houses and she felt like she was just being paranoid. But the reality is she wasn't. What she did not know is that this very same summer, there were other women having similar experiences and worse. A girl named Charmaine Agnos, she was 20 years old in the summer of 1991. She also lived there in San Diego and was attending a junior college. She lived with her dad and stepmom, and she said she felt like she was in this in-between time in her life where she's out of high school, she's in junior college, she's still living at home, just trying to figure out what that next step is. Mm -hmm. And she also loved going to the beach. 
San Diego was a relatively safe city. People didn't feel like they were in harm's way even late at night. So at night, she and friends would go to the beach. They would walk around town. No one ever felt like there was much of a risk. Everyone felt pretty safe. And she spent a lot of the time on the beach. And one time, one night they were having a big summer party. This was one of those parties that like everyone's looking forward to for like a couple weeks before it finally comes. And they're so excited. They go to the beach. They have this bonfire. And it's an amazing night. As the party started to wind down, though, she and her boyfriend decided to kind of go off, just the two of them, get a little bit of solo time, and walk on the beach together. At this point in time, it's 1.30 in the morning on July 4th, and they walk down the beach to an area that's very private and very hidden. Nothing felt off until, literally, they noticed that someone was right next to them. Oh, shit. Yeah. And then everything started happening really fast. This attacker was wearing a ski mask. They were in all black and they had a gun. Charmaine was angry. She was also scared. She thought they were going to be robbed because this guy asked for their car keys. But he never actually took the car keys. Instead, he asked them to get up because I guess they were sitting down and start walking down the beach like in the other direction, further away from the party. So they're walking down the beach, and over in this area where they're going, there are a few caves. All the while, the guy is behind them, holding a gun up to them. Oh, I hate this. The whole time they were walking, he's threatening to kill them if they do anything, and just, you know, making them continue to walk. They passed a few caves, and then they finally went into one. This attacker had Charmaine bind her boyfriend's hands and feet with duct tape. And this attacker seemed like he knew what he was doing. Like, this was not his first time. He was very well versed in this. He wasn't nervous at all. The attacker then takes Charmaine out of this cave. They leave her boyfriend bound in this cave. And he takes her to a cave next to it. He covered her head with her own t-shirt and put the gun up to her head. And then he raped her. Charmaine, through the ordeal, wanted to survive. So she kept telling herself, just do whatever he asks, be nice to him, and you'll survive this. This is what you have to do to save your own life. When he was done, he told her to go get her boyfriend and stay where he is. So she gets up, she goes to the other cave, and the attacker takes off. When she realizes the attacker is not following them, not coming... She and her boyfriend, like, come out of the cave, and she just starts running and screaming that she'd been attacked, that she'd been raped, and someone does overhear her and immediately calls 911. Paramedics arrived, and there was one paramedic that she quickly befriended, and he was helping her, and they took her to the rape crisis center that was there in San Diego. When she was there... She learned that she was this attacker's third victim. He was a serial rapist, and the more victims he had, the more extreme his actions were becoming. By this point in time, when Charmaine and her boyfriend were attacked, police knew that there was a single person that was involved in these rapes, and that he was highly skilled and very dangerous. Most of the attacks were on couples, 
and the women would tie up their boyfriend and be raped within earshot of them. So it seemed like the modus operandi of this serial rapist had something to do with couples. On this show, there was a psychologist. I honestly didn't go into, in my case, and like what I'm sharing with you guys today, I didn't go into that aspect. I didn't really want to focus on this serial rapist. But the psychology in the episode goes behind some of these things and the potential traumas that may have happened in his life. But this is not about him. This yeah. is about our victims. Yes. His next attack was on July 6th. So two days later. And at this point, the community is starting to panic. Like I said, San Diego was a very safe area, a safe city, and it was called like a little quiet city in the 90s. Yeah. Well, I feel like I feel like it's very easy to forget that San Diego is the ninth biggest city in the U.S. I know. I mean, it's the same size roughly as Dallas. Yeah, it's a pretty big city. I've never been there, only to the airport, but the police felt like they were racing the clock. They had to find this attacker before he raped another victim. Their task force was set up on the beach. There were people undercover. They had helicopters. They had people hiding in the sand. They had people hiding around corners. Like, they were staking out so many areas to try to catch this guy when he was trying to find victims. They had a yeah. massive manhunt. And in this episode, like, the police put a lot of money behind this. Like, they were like, this is going to be expensive, but we need to find this person. Unfortunately, two weeks passed. They still hadn't found him. And then he attacked his next victim. But these victims were 13 and 14 years old. Oh, my God. For reference, Charmaine was 20. So there is a major age difference. Yeah. While all of this was going on, Charisma, she still felt like someone was trying to break into her apartment. So she was doing things like setting booby traps, like stacking pots and pans by the door. So if someone were to open it, they would fall over and it would wake her up. I can't imagine not only feeling that way in your home, but that also being your workplace. Yeah. Like that's... That's not only your safe space, you know, that 16 hours a day you're not working, but the eight hours a day you are. Exactly. It's where she is at all times. Also, why I would never want to live and work at the same... I literally was about to say that, and that is what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I was like, we've been <laughs> doing that since... For, we've, for the past year. I know. Well... But I was thinking... When we've had jobs. <laughs> You've had a job the whole time. Yes, I have. So what I mean, I, I do want to clarify, because working from home in my head is different than working and living at the same place. Let me explain myself. <laughs> because I'm still in my home. I'm not going to like another building. Like I don't work at my apartment complex and I'm like working in the office, not at home, and then walking 10 feet and being home. Well, and also, I feel like for me, at least, the working from home even though it's been a year and from everything my work has told me, it's going to be much longer. It still feels temporary. Um, like it yeah. still feels at the end of the day, I have a desk in an office with my name on it. So 
I don't know. It doesn't feel like like this is my working situation. It still feels like this is my temporary working situation, even though like it's not temporary. <laughs> um, so I do get the the difference. Yeah, it is different. But for some people, maybe it's not. I guess it really just depends on how you look at it. But in Charisma's case, especially when you add in that feeling unsafe, that is horrible. Yeah. On August 15th, 1991... Charisma was hanging out with two of her guy friends, Arthur Garcia and a man named Aldo, and she suggested that the three of them go to the beach. At this point in time, she had no idea that people were being attacked on the beach. Oh, so it's not like the nightly story on the news, or I guess it could have been and she doesn't watch the news. It is. This is the top story. I guess she just did not watch the news or read the paper, which... I mean, I can't give her shit for this because for a very long time, neither did I. I mean, the the thing is, though, yeah, when I think about it, I don't I don't get the newspaper like I don't I don't order the newspaper to my apartment. I don't even know how to. Do I call them? You can do it online. Oh, OK, fair. But, you know, and I will maybe t- twice a week go to like the local news stations but generally it's for the weather i get like updates from my different apps like i have that citizen app that every 10 minutes is like there was a stabbing two miles away or there was a hostage situation at the fucking children's medical center and someone murdered a doctor that happened yesterday I know. I saw that. That was because I, I still have my Austin alerts on on my phone, and I saw that whole situation going down. It was, yeah. I it, that that was one of the times when I uh, I got the notifications and then like was looking at the news. But for a lot of like local news stories and stuff, you know, I I feel like. Even, you know, my two or three times a week looking at the local news is a lot more than some people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, if it's even if it is the top story, if you're not consuming that media, We're not that know. doesn't really. Yeah, I will say I do think it is important now that I have shifted and I, I try to be more engaged and watch the news. I'm not saying I turn on the nightly news every night. I definitely don't. I have news apps and I get like notifications for local alerts and I have my national news that I get the alerts for. And that's how I stay up with it. I stay up with it mostly from apps and notifications and Mm -hmm. I'll turn on the news when something's going on and I want a a deep dive. But I do think it is important, even if you're not consuming the news on a daily basis, I know the news can oftentimes be depressing. So sometimes too much news is too much news. But I think it is important to to be aware of what's going on where you are and like being local and national. You, you should have an awareness of what's happening. Yeah. Well, and even like liking and following your local news station on Facebook so that, you know, when you're scrolling, you're seeing your friends, you know, feeds and whatever, those news stories are also there. So, right. you know, you're able to still have that piece of information but in an easy way and in a way that you know you're not having to oh right i need to like check the news today you know it's something that oh yeah i'm on facebook okay there it is right but i will say 
Charisma was 21 in the 90s. We were in our 20s in the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. It was very different. Early 2000s? Well, from when was I 21? Yeah, I turned 21 in 2014, <laughs> so. You know, it it could be the early 2000s, depending on what year. You know, if it was 20. If we're talking about the century, yeah. <laughs> anyway, what I'm saying is like, when we were 21 and when Charisma was 21, it wasn't as common for people our age to be engrossed in the news. I think that has shifted. I do think Gen Z is more aware of current political and local things that are going on. And maybe I'm Mm -hmm. speaking for a generation that I don't know about because I'm not Gen Z, but it just seems like younger people... Yeah, but you're on TikTok. I know, I am on TikTok. But I feel like younger people (laughs) are more woke than we were as younger people. Uh, I would 100% agree. But I also think that, you know, she's, she's 20 in the early 90s, to be knowledgeable of the local news and stuff, your options are have a subscription to the newspaper or watch the nightly news. Okay. Or I guess listen to the news radio. And it, it's an active choice. You have a, That is there a very a, good point. It is not something that is automatically in front of you like it is for yeah, us. Yeah, there's, there's not a passive way to consume that media. So, like I said, Charisma did not know... That the beach is probably not where you want to be, especially when it's 11 p.m. So the three of them go to the beach and they decide to go swimming. They weren't like prepared for this. So they just take off their clothes and go into the ocean in their underwear. And like, whatever. Charisma, though, she's like, okay, no, I'm going to like take off my jeans and my shirt and fold them up and put them like where I know where they are. I'm not going to just like strip and run into the ocean. So she goes Mm -hmm. over to, like, the lifeguard um, post. So she knows, like, I'll take out my pants here. I'll fold them. I'll put them right there. And then she heard something. And all of a sudden, the attacker comes from around the corner and immediately says, shut the fuck up. So Arthur and Aldo are already in the ocean and they're swimming. Arthur kind of turns to see where Charisma is. And he sees this man and he sees this guy has a gun. So they get out of the water, the two of them, Arthur and Aldo, and they go up there and they thought they were being robbed. And, you know, the guy's asking for their keys, that same dialogue that we heard in Charmaine's case. And then all of a sudden, everything clicked for Arthur. And he realized this was the guy that the police were looking for because he had heard about what was going on in the news. He just wasn't thinking about it like it wasn't something that was in the forefront of his mind until he was in the situation yeah the attacker orders aldo to go down to the water to get their pants where their money and their keys are at this time the attacker asks charisma to bind arthur's hands with a belt behind his back when she does it though she doesn't latch it properly. Like, she doesn't put the little, like, thing in, in the hole of the belt. And she loosely puts the belt into the loop. She makes it look like it's done. But it's not tight. It's not actually bound. And thankfully, Arthur plays along with this. Like, he gets that, you know, what she did. And he pretends to, ha- you know, have his hands bound. And then yeah. she goes to bind Aldo's hands. At this point, she's starting to get really scared. And 
So she's trying to think of anything that she can do to get out of this situation because she realizes if both of her guy friends are tied up, she's completely alone and like she's on her own. She doesn't have help against this attacker. And so she's saying things like, oh, she needs help. She can't bind him. She's like, you, you'll you probably do this much better than I will. Well, the attacker is getting really pissed off. Like he is not falling for this. And so he holds the gun up to her head and she asks him, she's like, are you going to rape me now? And his response is, you bet your ass I am. Jesus. Fuck. I know. The attacker is getting really frustrated with Charisma. He tells her that she's not cooperating. And I guess he's given in and he's like, fuck it. I will bind all those arms. And she's like, go sit down by Arthur where I can see you. So... Charisma and Arthur are sitting next to each other and they're facing the attacker who is behind Aldo tying up his hands. So at this point in time, Arthur is loosening his binding. He's waiting for the attacker to look down because he knows this is the moment that he needs to do something. If he's going to do anything at all, this is the time. I mean, yeah, because if this guy is using both of his hands to, you know, bind Aldo, he doesn't have a hand on the gun. Exactly. The gun is like he's holding it between his legs and he gave the flashlight to Charisma because he didn't have three hands. And so, like, Charisma has the flashlight. She's holding it, you know, across from him. The gun is in between his legs, still facing them, but, I mean, his hand's not on the trigger. Arthur takes this opportunity and lunges at the attacker The attacker immediately grabs the gun and shoots Arthur. But Arthur got to the attacker and he starts hitting him as hard as he could. Aldo was not tied up at this point, so he is free and starts to attack as well. During the fight, Aldo was shot in the stomach and Arthur is realizing he's got to try to kill this guy. He's got to try to kill the attacker because there's not going to be any other way to get get out of this. Charisma, at this point in time, the three men are fighting, and she runs to the highway for help. She doesn't know what else to do, and she's like, I can find help. So she sees all these cars parked, and she's screaming. There's a camper. She starts banging on the door. All the while, gunshots are just going off, multiples behind her during the fight. And no one is answering. No one's coming out. Nobody's doing anything. Oh my god. I mean, I I get it. If, if I I don't know how I would react if I heard someone scream for help and multiple gunshots happening right outside my camper or my car. I know, and this is 91, so it's not like these people have a cell phone to call the police either. They can't call 911. Yeah. Maybe some of them have a cell phone or a car phone, but not a guarantee. Back down on the beach, Arthur has gotten his hand on the gun and he's trying to turn the gun towards the attacker to shoot him. At this point, the attacker lets Arthur go and says, if you know what's best for you, you'll run. The attacker then parts ways and Arthur goes up towards the highway to find Charisma. He's trying to find her and he realizes he's been shot in the chest. Charisma sees Aldo down at the beach, and he's he's not really moving. She doesn't know if he's alive or dead. There's blood everywhere. So she goes down to him, 
and she's holding him and she helps get him up and she's taken him back to the Jeep and she sees Arthur by himself. She didn't see the attacker run away. She doesn't really know what's going on. Arthur grabs a flashlight so he can find the the keys to the Jeep. He miraculously locates them on the beach. I really don't know how that's possible, but he finds the keys. Oh my God. And they are able to get Aldo into the back of the Jeep and drive to the nearest convenience store to call 911. During the drive, Aldo is going in and out of consciousness. Like, he is really not doing well. I mean, yeah, he's been shot in the stomach. Mm -hmm. Arthur runs into the convenience store. And you've got to remember, Arthur is covered in blood. Not, like, not only is it Aldo's, but also his own. He has a gunshot wound in his chest, and he's wearing his underwear. So he yeah. he runs into this convenience store, and he's yelling for the clerk to call 911. The clerk is kind of shell-shocked, which, can you blame him? No. Yeah. Arthur no. ends up, like, reaching over the counter, grabbing the phone himself, and calling 911. The ambulance arrives... And takes Arthur and Aldo to the hospital. And Charisma goes with them. The bullet that shot Arthur did go mostly into muscle. So he was pretty lucky. He was rushed into surgery to remove the bullet. But the bullet that shot Aldo, it hit a rib and it was lodged in his liver. He had lost a lot of blood. And during that first initial surgery they could not remove the bullet. It was more like damage control. He was in two critical conditions. So they did what they could. They stitched some things up to stop the bleeding and they left the bullet there. Yeah. Well, one thing I learned about like gunshot wounds that I didn't know, and it's from, I think, Wired. I think it's a magazine, but the YouTube, because that's how I consume everything. Right. But one of the series they do is like, expert debunks you know blank and a couple of the episodes are like a surgeon debunking hollywood or like movie tv medical things and one of the things she talked about is how in tv and movies the the goal is always like get the bullet out and you know you always see they get the bullet out and then the vitals return and that's everything and she was like Lots of people have bullets in them. They leave that, them? Yeah. Yeah. Lots of times they leave the bullet in like it. it's damage control. And then if the bullet, if getting it out is going to cause more damage than leaving it in, they'll leave it in. Because bullets are mostly, I mean, the heat from firing it sanitizes it. So... The bullet itself is generally not going to cause infection. I mean, it's an open wound, so there's that. But by and large, getting the bullet out is not the goal of trauma surgery. I have two thoughts. First one, you do hear about a lot of vets talk about the bullets that are still in them. And I've never also like thought about that for gunshot victims that are not a part of war. I have never... like you know, flip-flopped that that idea. My other thought, do they make metal detectors beep? What do you do if they need an MRI? Like, how does that work? They got a bullet in them. That's metal. I mean, and if it's an MRI... Or maybe I meant it would CT only... scan. Well, no, MRI is the magnet. 
But I guess it would only matter... I know everyone says, like, lead for bullets, but I can't imagine bullets are 100% lead nowadays. I don't know. Maybe they are. But uh, I guess unless it's iron, unless it's, like, a magnetic metal, I mean, it would show up, but it's not going to, like, do anything unless it's, you know, magnetic. So I don't... I, I don't know. But obviously, you know, when there people are shot you know sometimes they do need mris or cts or x-rays and stuff and you know you see the bullet in there so i don't know i've never been to medical school i have not either arthur and aldo both survived their surgeries oh good at the same time about 10 miles down the road at uc san diego medical center there was another man being treated for a gunshot wound. The man was identified as a San Diego police officer currently employed by the San Diego PD. He said that his car had stalled and when he was outside, he was jumped and that's when he was shot. But the doctor treating him was pretty suspicious of of this story. And one of the clues that made the doctor feel kind of uneasy is that this man had sand, like, all over him. Listeners, you can't see my face. My eyes are wide. Oh, yeah. I bet you didn't think this case is going there. A fucking current San Diego police officer. Yeah. I, when I hit this moment in my research, I was like, are you actually fucking kidding me? So back at the other hospital, detectives have arrived and they're questioning Charisma And they're asking her a lot of questions. They're looking at the Jeep. And again, the Jeep, there's blood everywhere. Like, there's evidence. It's essentially a crime scene or an extension of the crime scene. The detectives ask Charisma where she got the flashlight that they found in the car. And she says, I brought it with me. I brought it with me. And I guess what's not, like, really being communicated very well in that instance is that she meant, I brought it with me from the beach. From the crime scene. So this was the attacker's flashlight. And as it turns out, this flashlight was a police-issued flashlight with the name Hubbard and his, like, number engraved on it. Oh. So he basically gave them his light-up driver's license. Can you say stupid? Like, your flashlight has your name on it. Why is that? I mean, I am not trying to say you should have like, I'm glad he didn't think about this. But literally, why are you using that flashlight? It's probably brighter. Honestly, it's a police issued one. But still. Yeah. Why are you using that flashlight? I I mean, I'm sure it's because he is a fucking monster who thinks. Arrogance. He is above everything. Yeah. And so he just looks at it as his bright flashlight because he's never going to get caught. Nope. He's too good. Except he's not. So, like I said, not only was this huge because his name was on it, but also every single one of the victims described this flashlight and it fit the description of what they found. Detectives at this point had been contacted by the other hospital because of the suspicious doctor. They arrive there and they arrest Henry Hubbard. Henry denies being the rapist, but he is identified in a police lineup by the victims. The police had the victims each write down a statement that they wanted each man in the lineup to say. 
this is how a lot of the victims identified Hubbard as their rapist. So it was not only visual, but it was that auditory identification. Yeah. I mean, well, because he was wearing a ski mask. I mean, and so in the lineup, everyone was. They were wearing all black and ski masks. Because that's how they would have appeared to the victims. Yeah. Yeah. But just, uh, I guess I don't think about it, but yeah, having having people in the lineup say, you know, phrases, have them, you know, give not only visual clues of standing there, but auditory and stuff. Yeah. I think that happens in most lineups. I think we don't normally talk about it. And it's not really shown on like movies and TV. It's mostly like, no, it's not him. No, it's not him. Oh, it's definitely number five. Like, but I do think this have him say a sentence is very important in trying to positively identify someone in a lineup because we know witness identification and witness statements are not the most reliable thing. So you want to be able to tack on as much evidence, as much like memory things as you can. Yeah. So because Hubbard was a current police officer, he knew the whole stakeout plan. He knew where the police were, therefore knew how to avoid them. But he, but he continued to do this anyway. I mean, that is some arrogance. He pled guilty and the case did not go to trial. He knew obviously that the police had a very solid case against him and that he would be convicted. And one thing that really surprised his fellow colleagues is that for all they knew, he was a model citizen and police officer. He was one of the people that graduated at the top of his class. And so the fact that he did this it took everyone by surprise. It, they they did not expect it. But that's one of the things that goes to show you, you don't always know people. And when people have rage uh, caused maybe from like past trauma or something in their life, that's not necessarily something you're going to know. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, there is that stereotype of the guy who needs to hold on to any semblance of power for their sense of self becoming the becoming a police officer right and i don't want to say that that is universal at all or even common but it does happen and i think that the agency uh that is provided by being an authority figure by being a police officer combined with that kind of fucked up you know power control mentality in people that are going to do these horrible things i mean it it kind of like protects that i mean in, in the way that he is a cop and already has that semblance of power is this rapist and then also because he's a cop has knowledge of like oh okay so here are all the details of the case i mean he's the exact kind of person who'd be able to avoid all of that shit it's kind of like how ed kemper was best buddies with all the cops and knew all the shit so he knew exactly how to avoid it yeah that it's really messed up when cops are killers when killers are in with the cops because there is that level of information that you get but the thing about henry is It didn't even seem like he was that type of person that looked like he was seeking all this power. 
And so that's what made this all the more mysterious and still a lot of things to understand. And again, I think this is why they had a psychologist on the show. But this episode is not about Henry. This episode is about his victims. Charisma, Charmaine, Aldo, Arthur, and the unnamed victims as well. Yeah. Henry Hubbard was sentenced to 56 years in prison. And I think he could get out um, at about half that for good behavior because that's the way the system works. So he's currently in prison. Charisma later found out that Henry lived at the same apartment complex that she lived and worked at, meaning he was one of her tenants. And like I said earlier, she was not paranoid. Her suspicions about someone trying to break in were accurate. Henry had been doing background checks on her and stalking her before the attack. What the fuck? So there's that piece in her mind that's like, was that related to the attack on the beach? Or was that another thing he was trying to do, but then just so happened to find her on the beach and attack her? Or did he follow her? We don't really know these answers. Police later were also able to tie Henry Hubbard to another previous rape case that happened in a home near the beach. So one that during their investigation was not connected to the same series. He had been doing this beforehand as well. So that is the story of the survival of Charisma Carpenter, Charmaine Agnos, Arthur Garcia, and Aldo. I wasn't able to find his last name. There are other survivors. He had other victims. Again, they're they're unnamed. I know the two very young girls are unnamed specifically because they were juveniles. So <laughs> this is this is a really intense case, and I know we don't we don't normally do cases like this, but what makes this case so so scary is these things are happening all the time. And we just don't talk about them. And I think it's something that needs to be normalized more. It's by no means a comfortable conversation. But too often, I think victims of rape are, they feel shameful. And they are made to feel shameful for what happened to them. And that is yeah. that is absolutely not the way we should be looking at these types of situations. Yeah. I mean, I know in my personal experience, I mean, I... First off, I I didn't think how triggering this this case would be. I mean, I myself am a rape survivor. And I mean, yeah, the self-blame, the not not feeling the agency, the ability to like say it for a long time like yeah. But um fuck. I know. I mean this this is so important though to to talk about because I think one of the things that makes this case so horrifying is just how often it happens. Yeah. And yet how often it's not talked about. Yes. And and that's I feel like I want to clarify what I was saying just a little bit. When I say we need to normalize this, what I mean is normalize the ability for people to feel comfortable if they so choose to talk about these things, to talk about them. Don't add shame. Don't add 
making this feel like it's got to be this private secret thing. Because I think that does make some people that maybe are ready to talk about it feel like they can't because other people are uncomfortable. And I'm like, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be uncomfortable about something that did not happen to you. You're not the one that gets to be uncomfortable in this situation. Exactly. Like this is this is something that I think so much needs to be talked about because it needs to be presented as something that for those who are affected by it, it is your choice to talk about it mm-hmm. and be open with it as much as you want. And the only decision factor there is do you want to or not? Exactly. Not is this going to make people, these people feel uncomfortable or is this something I should feel shameful about or is this something that I'm going to be judged for? Because it's not at all, at fucking all. The only reaction to someone talking about surviving sexual assault and rape should be support, praise, that they've survived this, and that's it. Right. I know that was really heavy, but I think this was a really important case for us to cover, and a very different type of survivor case than we've done in the past. Yeah. Well, Tyler, what is your survivor case? So my case is the one that Lexi sent to us, and the one that was very close to her. And it is the survival of Queen of Wong. The sources that I used, an article from the Herald Tribune by Mike Wells and Thomas Krauss. An article from Fox 13 News by Haley Hines. An article from Patch.com by Sherry Lonnan. An article from ABC Action News by Carson Chambers. And then Queena's own website, joinquena.com. So, in 2008, Queen of Wong, she's an honor student in high school. She spends a lot of her time reading and studying. Most of her friends and classmates know her as this funny, dorky, sweet friend who just loves everything that's pink. She has this huge heart. She volunteers her time at hospices. She's also really involved in the Best Buddies program at her school, and through that she formed a lot of like one-on-one friendships with students with disabilities. Quina is this, she's just a typical teenage girl. She loves shopping, she loves ice cream, she's always laughing and talking about like her day. She loved music, her favorite thing was to be on the beach, and Pretty much the main thing anyone said about her was that she was just, like, the best friend anyone could have. So she is fucking amazing, and the girl that we were all best friends with in high school. I mean, yeah. She's, I can think of people that I knew in high school that remind me of her. Absolutely. On April 24th of 2008, Queen is 18 years old, and... She's going to the library, she has some books to return, and she gets out of her car, she's on the phone with her friend, just like chatting, she has her books in her hand, and as she's walking towards the like little drop box, she 
mentions to her friend that, oh, there's this guy on the benches outside the library. And, you know, she's putting the books in the drop box and kind of struggling. And then a couple minutes later, the call with her friend was disconnected at 10.39 p.m. And all her friend heard was Queenus screaming. Her friend alerted her family and also other friends. They went to the library because the friend knew she was there and something happened. Her friends and family get to the library and they find her bloody and beaten into unconsciousness in this isolated area on the side of the library. She was unconscious and gasping and she'd been raped. This is so scary because returning a book at the library is quite possibly one of the safest things or things you feel safest doing. You're just returning a book to the library. I I did this yesterday. I went to the mm-hmm. library. I returned my books. I checked out more. I got in my car and I left. The, like, I'm in shock right now because this is such a mundane, everyday type situation that so many people find themselves in. And I'm struggling with that. I, I struggle every time, and it's far too often, that we talk about someone being in a situation that is seen as so mundane, and yet something so horrific happens. Yeah. I mean, there is there is no reason to think you might be in danger. No. And also, she was on the phone with a friend. I know. Like, she, she had an outside point of contact. Thank God. Thank God she was on the phone with her friend. Yeah. Because when they found her... Queena had suffered a fracture to her forehead. Oh, God. She had a small fracture on the tip of her nose. And she'd also suffered numerous strokes that were caused by her being strangled. And she'd also lost her vision. Oh, my God. This person that attacked her was a 16-year-old named Kendrick Morris. 16? 16. Morris was, he was known to be a troubled student at the high school, and he frequently hung out at the library after school, and he would wait there for hours for his mom to pick him up. So he was, it was a pretty common sight to see him waiting there at the library. A classmate of Quina's told detectives when they were investigating the case that he saw Morris sitting outside a library at about 9.30 the night of the attack. So about an hour before the attack, this classmate saw him there sitting on the benches. The next morning after the attack, like the police had, had already gotten Morris on their radar from like the witness testimonies from the people that had like, oh, he's there and stuff before the attack. The next morning, an officer saw him walking up to the library's front doors and, like, going back to the scene of the attack. What? Yeah. I mean, it's it's the criminal going to the scene of the crime shit. Yes, that's exactly what it is. So the officer stomped him inside, like, saw him going to the library and was like, um, hold the fuck on. That's the guy we're looking for. The police interrogated him and... You know, he mentioned he had been at the library that night, but he said he'd left before the attack. You know, he'd gone to McDonald's and he'd gone to Walmart and stuff. 
But his story didn't match the eyewitness reports or the evidence. Because, one, he gave different times of like, oh, yeah, I was at McDonald's at 10. You know, and the attack happened at about 10.30. Well, McDonald's has cameras. Mm -hmm. Walmart has cameras. They were able to see, no, you weren't that's there. not when you were there. Also, they found his DNA. Oh, yeah. I mean, that does not surprise me. DNA linked him to this attack, and also his fingerprints were found on the benches that were in front of the library doors. And also on what looked like a plat. They said a plastic eating utensil. So like a plastic knife that was found below a blood stain. So like was there and got blood on it. Um, and the plastic knife, it had been filed down to a weapon. It was a shank. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like that is a shank. That is like the definition of a shank. Plastic knife filed down. Yeah. So when the Florida Department of Law Enforcement found his DNA, they also decided to run it in the statewide database, and it matched an unsolved rape in Tampa in June of 2007. Oh my god, like, so when he was 15? Yeah. In that case, a woman who worked at a daycare, she was opening up the daycare at about 5.30 in the morning on June 28th, 2007. And as she's opening it up, she's closing the door behind her, and this hand pulls it back, like pulls it open. She turns around, and it's this young guy wearing a ski mask, and he's holding a knife to her. He told her to lie on the floor and was asking her for money, and then he told her to take off her clothes and at that point, another employee at the daycare began to knock on the door. So, like, he took her inside, and this other employee's knocking on the door, like, hey, we're, we're, we should be open, like, let me in. Right, like, I'm here for work, what's going on? And I'm assuming this other employee can't see them. I'm sure not. But Morris, he ignores the knock on the door... And he attempts twice to rape the woman. But then she tells him that, you know, the the woman at the door, the other employee, she probably has a key to get in. So she's probably going to walk in here any moment. And that scared Morris off. And he fled. Well, I mean, he's 15. Of course, it scared him. He should be. Yeah. My mind is blown that he's 15 years old and he's doing this. I know. So flash forward to April 27th of 2008, three days after Queen's attack, the sheriff's deputies and police officers tried to interview her at the hospital. She remembered going to the library, she remembered talking on the phone with her friend, but she couldn't really remember anything else, and she just kept asking what happened to her and why she couldn't see. She still can't see? No. Quina was left blind and paralyzed, oh so she was God. bound to a wheelchair. She's also unable to speak or eat on her own. In 2011, Kendrick Morris was sentenced to 65 years in prison. But in 2017, 
he was up for resentencing. Why? So this is something we've talked about multiple times because this is Florida. And the resentencing came after the U.S. and the Florida Supreme Court decisions declared it unconstitutional to give juveniles lengthy punishments without a chance of release. I forgot he was 16. He was 16. And we've talked about this for after Maddie Clifton's case, after Maddie Clifton's murder. Yes. Yes, because it was what? Josh Phillips? Mm-hmm. Under the mattress. Oh my god. Yeah. Still one of the most horrific cases we've ever covered. Yes. So across the state of Florida, close to 300 inmates who'd been convicted when they were teenagers, they became eligible for new sentences, and Kendrick Morris was one of them. His defense lawyers were pushing Deva's sentence reduced, but due to the brutality of both of these attacks, and the way the resentencing works is they can be resentenced to a shorter amount of time or a longer amount of time. And in this case, the judge resentenced him to life in prison. Oh. Oh, that went in the direction he didn't want. Because of just the brutality and everything he did in both of these raids. Right. He got life in prison. So after Quina's traumatic brain injury that she received during the attack, her life, her future plans, they all changed. Now she lives at home and her mom takes care of her full time. But even though she lost a lot of her functions and she's bound to a wheelchair, Quina is still so optimistic and she loves making people laugh and smile. Her body, you know, may not do things she wants it to, but her mind is still very much alive and there. She remembers, she comprehends, she understands. She is still Quina in every, every way. I love that. When people talk to her about the mall and shopping, her eyes light up. When they're, when they're talking about concerts and stuff, she throws her arms up and is excited. And she still does one of her favorite things, which is going to the beach and dipping her toes in the water. Her story, Queen's story, it is incredible. And I highly, highly suggest that y'all go check out joinquina.com. You can read more about her story. Her mom also wrote a book called The Life She Once Knew. And also on the website, on joinquina.com, you can also donate to help with medical costs. You can also send messages of encouragement to this incredible woman who is an absolute fighter and an amazing survivor. And that is the case of the survival of Quina Vuong. There's so much to unpack there. Like, oh my gosh, I am I am so happy to hear how she's absolutely thriving. She is thriving and like with everything she has been faced with and yet she seems to still have this very positive outlook on her life oh her spirit yeah and her zest for life i guess is the phrase like 
that has not been tarnished. She is still Queena. She is still this nerdy best friend, just lovable, amazing person. And she has not let what happened to her break her. Not at all. At all. Not at all. Wow. That's powerful. And I absolutely understand why Lexi is so passionate about this case. Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, And y'all, again, I highly, highly suggest y'all go to joinquina.com and read her story, read her family about her recovery, and just everything. This has been a very powerful episode about survival and about, gosh, everything that's involved in being a survivor. Yeah. And also, if you enjoyed this episode, please go rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us those five stars. Let us know what you thought. We we really appreciate hearing what you have to say. Yes. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Instagram is the best because it's visual. It's pictures. Come on now. Yes, that's where we are most of the time. Who doesn't like spend way too much time on Instagram? We're all there. That's so real. With that, though, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.